0: All right. good afternoon everyone. Hi, my name is Christopher Preble. I'm the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Uh, Thank you all for being here today and uh, welcome also those of you to uh, watching online at cato.org and I think a time delayed hello to those watching on C-SPAN. I'd also like to extend special thanks to our outstanding conference staff here at Cato who always do such a terrific job organizing our events. I'm joined on the stage today by my colleagues John Glazer, Cato's Director of Foreign Policy Studies, and Cato's Senior Fellow Trevor Thrall. Uh, And we're here with Heather Hurlburt, Director of the New Models of Policy Change Program at New America. John, Trevor, and I are the co-authors of this book, Fuel to the Fire, How Trump Made America's Broken Foreign Policy Even Worse, and How We Can Recover. Copies are available for sale here at Cato for those of you in attendance and at all your favorite booksellers for those of you watching from afar. I'm gonna tell you a little bit about uh, the book, even though you could probably guess at a lot of it from the subtitle. Uh, uh, It includes uh, a discussion, uh, this is not a spoiler, uh, it includes a discussion of Donald Trump's critique of US foreign policy. Uh, It includes why we think, why we, the authors, think America's foreign policy was broken and that there is a better alternative than what President Trump has offered. So it's my responsibility today to sort of set the stage, and that involves a little bit of history, which is my forte, and a little bit of strategic analysis, which is all three of our uh, forte, I think it's fair to say. Um, I go back to Trump's uh, major foreign policy dress at the Mayflower Hotel On April 27, 2016, in that speech, he said, among other things, that since the Cold War, quote, foolishness and arrogance led to one foreign policy disaster after another, unquote. He promised to look for talented experts with new approaches and practical ideas, not those who have perfect resumes, but very little to brag about, except responsibility for a long history of failed policies and continued losses at war. And I put emphasis on losses at war because I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. He also said, no country has ever prospered that failed to put its own interests first. Both our friends and enemies put their countries above ours, and we, while being fair to them, must do the same. So that last phrase, you may recognize, that's the essence of America first. That's a phrase that Trump first uttered during that speech in April of 2016, but that has been repeated a number of times since, including in his administration's national security strategy, which was issued in December of 2017. The the strategy is called an America First national security strategy. So whether he knew it or not, uh, Donald Trump was assailing what Samuel Huntington, at the dawn of the post-Cold War era called primacy. Primacy, that's the dominant foreign policy paradigm under both Republican and Democratic presidents ever since. Uh, There was a famous document, Draft Pentagon Guidance in 1992 that elaborated the goals of this post-Cold War foreign policy. Uh, the object was to prevent the reemergence of a new rival capable of challenging U.S. power in any vital area, and those vital areas are generally thought to be uh, Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. Uh, the U.S. would do that by retaining preponderant military power, not merely to deter attacks against the United States, but also to discourage potential competitors, including even longtime allies like Germany and Japan from even aspiring to a larger regional or global role. And that's, again, a direct quote. Um, So that was the plan uh, and and the vision. And in the book, In Fuel to the Fire, we trace the history of how this actually played out in practice since. Uh, The highlights, or lowlights, if you prefer, include numerous foreign military entanglements, large and small, from Somalia to Bosnia to Kosovo to Afghanistan to Iraq, to Libya and now Syria. Uh, And then we explain, uh, we sort of survey quickly this this 20 or 25-year period, and then we explain why these failures abroad stem in large measure from the flaws inherent in primacy as a grand strategy. Uh, I'll call attention to to three in particular, uh, three flaws in primacy. Uh, The first is a tendency to exaggerate dangers in order to mobilize and sustain public support for protracted overseas adventures. Second, an overuse of the military at the expense of the many other instruments of American power and influence. And third, a persistent burden-sharing problem, which had steadily eroded public support for U.S. foreign policy over time. Now, Donald Trump spoke mostly of the third problem, free-riding. But he seemed content to solve that through better deal-making and negotiation, his uh, famous art of the deal. And so most recently we've seen this play out in his claim, uh, false, uh, his claim that Saudi Arabia will pay for the deployment of additional U.S. troops to the kingdom, for example. But there are other signs that Donald Trump's critique of U.S. foreign policy is different from ours. For example... He plays into public fears, especially of terrorism, and he boasts of dramatically increasing U.S. military spending uh, spending, and even of expanding U.S. foreign wars, which suggests that he isn't really critical of the U.S. wars per se, but rather the manner in which they've been fought, or even more specifically, he's mad that we're losing uh, but not winning. But that doesn't mean he's necessarily opposed to the wars per se. Um, And I think that really plays into primacy's flaws. Uh, Let me just read one passage, and then I'll I'll kick it over to John. Um, As we say in the book, the track record alone should have prompted some reflection on U.S. foreign policy. After all, while the United States of America is obviously a powerful country, it is not omnipotent. It hasn't discovered a magic formula for deploying force with such surgical precision that it can easily shape the international system in a way that works for everyone's benefit and harms no one. With respect to U.S. efforts at regime change, for example, Admiral Mike Mullen, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, noted in 2016, we're zero for a lot. Uh, Military historian Andrew Bacevich similarly concludes that having been at war for virtually the entire 21st century, the United States military is still looking for its first win. Unsurprisingly, others around the world don't trust the United States to perform the role of disinterested global policemen. Many, in fact, don't even believe U.S. leaders' professions of good intent. But let me close with this passage. For the most part, we write, U.S. leaders mean well. They are often motivated by a genuine desire to shape the international system in ways that are conducive to peace and prosperity. But they err in believing that they have the capability to do great things, and they end up causing harm. By privileging the military over other instruments of U.S. power and influence, primacy undermines Americans' safety. So I'll stop there, and I'll kick it over to my co-author and colleague, John, and he can take it to the next step here.
1: Thanks. Um, So as you could probably pick up a little bit from what Chris just said, uh, there has been, since the campaign in 2015 and up to now, a lot of confusion, I think, over how to Categorize Trump's foreign policy views. Um, Especially for nerdy think tank people who care about political science, international relations, because we have all these words that mean something, and uh, you can fit people into a school of thought very easily. And Trump was always difficult to characterize. And so during the campaign, he when he stumbled upon some of these things that sort of sound like, for example, what people at the Cato Institute have been arguing, you know, that NATO. Uh, has some burden-sharing problems and that we shouldn't engage in regime change wars and, and this kind of thing. Uh, people ended up calling him variously isolationist, uh, realist, <laughs> restraint-oriented, etc. and we just found that not to be persuasive at all. And so one of the reasons we wrote the book is to kind of make a distinction between Trump and these well-respected schools of thought. Um, so we go, we, I, I talk about why he isn't any of those former things, but also then the, it's incumbent upon us to elaborate what we think Trump is. How, how do his foreign policy views uh, come together and, and um, uh, once in office sort of come out as policy? And uh, it was very difficult to do that, to try to categorize and classify Trump's foreign policy views for a lot of reasons. I mean, first of all, he's a liar, Uh, so he's very rarely on, uh, very often on the same side, of, on different sides of many issues. He flip-flops constantly. Um, He was for the Iraq war before he was against it. He was for the Libya intervention before he was against it. He was against going into Syria before he was for it. Uh, NATO was obsolete when he said so in 2016. A few months into office, it was no longer obsolete. I mean, these are just kind of top line items. He is all over the place typically uh, in terms of what his position is. Um, He may not have a coherent worldview of the kind that is useful for foreign policy analysis. Um, So instead of sort of classify him in one of these broad categories, I try to come up with descriptors that made sense for Trump that could kind of perhaps guide his foreign policy views and c- certainly help us understand them. So he's very zero-sum transactional. This has been widely understood. This, this happens in trade. He thinks that uh, our win is somebody else's loss and vice versa. Um, it shows up in his uh, burden-sharing argument that NATO countries should just pay us and then we'll continue the racket that he thinks this scheme is. Um, it comes in immigration. You know, he very much cares about um, uh, taking of jobs, taking of low-wage jobs by, by immigrate, immigrants. And this boils over in, also into the security realm. I remember uh, his articulation of why he vetoed the, um, uh, the piece of legislation that would have stopped U.S. involvement in the Saudi Arabia uh, bombing of Yemen. Uh, and his main argument was that, well, it's uh, good for jobs because the Saudis buy weapons for us. Therefore, uh, Americans have to help build weapons here, and therefore it's good for us. And forget about the strategic analysis of whether or not our involvement in Yemen is a good idea. Forget about the humanitarian um, part of it. You know, he, he's able to justify it in zero-sum terms, and, and so that sort of gets away with it. He's also uh, very Jacksonian. If anyone has lots of extra time on their hands, they can go back to a book called *Special Providence* that uh, political scientist Walter Russell Mead wrote in 2001, long before Trump uh, descended the escalator in 2015. And it's a pretty uncanny description of Trump as a political actor. Um, and you know, Jacksonians are militaristic. They rely on populism. They're engaged typically in centralization of some kind. There's some xenophobia in there that makes sense for Trump. Um, one of the characteristics is that they're, they're apt to leave neutral parties alone, but if they feel threatened or their honor is besmirched, they'll come back with overwhelming force. People used to say this about Trump during the Republican campaigns. You know, He would leave neutral parties alone, but if they came out and insulted him, he would destroy them. And that's kind of, he takes that into foreign policy as well. Uh, his Jacksonian... Jacksonianism also uh, bleeds into his opposition to sort of globalist designs, anything international, uh, institutions, organizations, treaties, multilateral engagement, You know, all these things he's very uncomfortable with. Um, he's also fixated on his status and cares a lot about respect. So one of the things I was doing in, in trying to come up with things that make sense and can explain Trump's behavior, As I went through basically all his public statements and interviews since 1980. And something I kept finding over and over and over again is something that I did not expect, which was he almost used the same phrase over and over again over the course of uh, 40 years or so. Uh, Something along the lines of they're taking advantage of us, they're laughing at us, we're not respected anymore, Um, you know, he, he cares a ton about this. And this probably has something to do with with the way he's run his foreign policy. I remember uh, his initial opposition to engaging in Syria uh, eventually redounded to his political benefit when he decided to bomb Syrian regime assets in 2017 and then again in 2018. Uh, This was probably the first act that got him plaudits from the very... Community that he has uh, made a political career out of bashing the the establishment loved it. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, uh, his antagonists on on the right like uh, Marco Rubio and John McCain, you know the kind of foreign policy class and community in this town uh, gave a big thumbs up, and he felt he felt great. Uh, Fareed Zakaria said, "This is he's finally become president of the United States." You know. Um, So he got a lot of status and prestige from that. Also, probably North Korea. Uh, There were reports that he tried to convince Japan's Shinzo Abe to recommend him for the Nobel Peace Prize if he does well in North Korea. And I think probably uh, South Korean uh, President Moon Jae-in has also maybe cultivated that that belief. Uh, And so he. And his activity on North Korea is pretty clear. I think he cares more about the stagecraft than the statecraft of it. Uh, It's very showy and ostentatious without getting a lot of the granular details uh, done. Um, Finally, he has an authoritarian mind. Uh, He is unusually authoritarian by the standards of US political culture. Um, He demands loyalty from federal officials that are supposed to be independent and nonpartisan. He has used ad hominem slander to attack judges that have the gall to disagree with his executive orders. Um, he has a tendency to label people as traitors or treasonous if they disagree with him. Um, uh, the you know enemy of the people is a name for the press that I think only authoritarian types uh, tend to embrace. And so... These four frames are essentially my attempt to describe and, and uh, categorize Trump's foreign policy. And it has certain implications for how things go out. Uh, on the other hand, once we actually get into policy, it's very difficult to see, even with a president that I think has thought a lot about foreign policy, which I think Trump hasn't, but and maybe sees themselves in one of these political science-y categories that we like to talk about. Uh, Translating policy exactly the way the president sees things is often very difficult. And so there has to be some explanation for why some things have changed and some haven't. Because although Trump was uh, quite vehement, in his, uh, as Chris laid out, in his criticisms of the last 30 years or so of foreign policy and, and all the people who have worked on foreign policy in those years, uh, there's a lot more continuity than there is change in the first three years of Trump's presidency. He hasn't relinquished any formal alliance. He hasn't removed U.S. troops from any uh, garrison. You know, uh, Slipping out 100, you know, 1,000 troops from Syria doesn't quite cut it. Plus, he also quadrupled the number of troops in Syria in his first two years in office and also loosened the rules of engagement so that the bombing campaign could be ramped up by orders of magnitude, quite frankly. Uh, so restraint isolationism doesn't really fit there. Uh, he's embraced NATO. He welcomed 29th NATO member. Uh, Montenegro. Montenegro. Montenegro, and possibly Macedonia will be the 30th. Yep. Offered uh, Brazil major non-NATO status. I mean, most of his big foreign policy um, um, efforts have not been, uh, have not had the characteristics of someone who wants to retreat from the world or, Upend sort of the basis of US foreign policy. But he has done a little learning on the job, so a lot of things he just wasn't familiar with and therefore learned or was told once he came into the office. That has changed things. Uh, in, he has a lot of indifference to foreign policy. I think he cares mostly about his domestic political uh, power, and uh, foreign policy is situated in, you know, subordinate to that. Uh, He has a lot of political calculations that just make sense for Think about this Syria withdrawal again. He has constantly described this withdrawal as bringing the troops home, ending endless wars. That's not true, but it's good for him politically. So first it was just a relocation of about 50 U.S. soldiers from North Syria uh, to the rest of Syria, and now it's withdrawing 1,000 troops and putting them in Iraq and in Qatar and Saudi Arabia and so on. Shuffling around, you know, troops in the Middle East is not exactly restraint or isolationism. Uh, And thirdly, or fourthly, he has had to compete with a very strong consensus of American engagement and leadership, even within his own cabinet. So uh, he was pretty reluctant to continue on with the Afghanistan war. Um, I think you don't need any kind of special degree to see that things have. Uh, gone pretty badly there and that it's time for us to maybe rethink the approach. It's about almost two decades and the government we've set up is horrendous and uh, doesn't have control over most of the country and still fighting the Taliban insurgency, which is not going away. Um, And he wanted to withdraw from that, and he got a ton of pushback. One of the comments from James Mattis was reportedly, well, we have to stay there uh, in order to prevent a bomb going off in Times Square. It's an absurd spasm of threat inflation, but nevertheless, it it helped persuade Trump to continue the fight in Afghanistan, uh, and the same with Syria. You know, he initially wanted to withdraw in December 2018. He uh, declared in a tweet that he wanted it done so by, by the following February, and uh, you know the bureaucracy ended up essentially 100% reversing that because they were opposed to withdrawal. Now, he didn't do things the right way through the interagency process, and his management style, or lack thereof, is an indication that he failed to sort of get his cabinet unified around a, a clear strategy, and that's his fault. But nevertheless, there has been a kind of constant um, this is why the, the term adults in the room came along. Uh, We're trying to manage Trump's erratic impulses, and sometimes that means making sure we don't make radical changes to the strategic consensus around primacy that exi- has existed for many decades. Um, and so you know, you see a lot of mixed results. You see a lot of things that uh, don't match with either what he said before or what, he, what, he, what we believe that his inclinations are. Um, and so it's always – I will never write another book about Trump, hopefully, and I will also never write a book that's so topical as this one because the uh, the uh, personnel changes that have happened so rapidly – and pro- there's probably been more turnover in this administration than any other in recent memory – but we had to keep changing – people's titles in, in revisions of the draft. You know, now it's former John Bolton, <laughs> former National Security Advisor, former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. Um, so that didn't help the difficulty, but nevertheless, I'll hand it off to Trevor after that lengthy uh, explication.
2: All right, thanks, John. So to bring us home, <clears throat> I'll talk about kind of the last third of the book. Um, first, sort of the public response to Trump in America first and concerns that Washington has had about public opinion. And then finally, just to get us started, um, our conclusion chapter where we talk about where we should be headed next. Um, So just to go back a bit, even before the 2016 election, the foreign policy establishment in Washington, D.C. was worried about eroding public support for global engagement, uh, and especially for the endless wars in the Middle East. Uh, and in 2013, a survey of experts—I use that term in air quotes, I suppose—I have to—at uh, the Council on Foreign Relations uh, found that 92% of these experts believed that the uh, American public had become less supportive of taking an active part in world affairs. They actually had quite good reason for this, because in a 2013 poll from the Pew Research Center, uh, for the first time, Pew found that a majority of Americans, 52%, Uh, agreed with the statement that the United States should mind its own business internationally and let other countries get along the best they could on their own. First time in history since the early 60s when this question started being asked in that way. In 2014, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs also recorded a near-record low public support for international engagement. They found only uh, 58% of Americans saying that the United States should take an active part in world affairs. Um, These trends, maybe they don't sound that spectacular on the surface to you, but to people who are foreign policy observers in D.C., these numbers were, were terrifying. And, and there was a lot of uh, hemming and there's still, uh, to this day, some hemming and hawing about what just uh, all of that means. Uh, just to give you an example, uh, to quote Walter Russell Mead, uh, again, he wrote earlier this year in a Wall Street Journal commentary, there is no more important question in world politics than this. Will U.S. public opinion Continued to support an active and strategically focused foreign policy? Or, as the historian Hal Brands put it a little more bluntly, is American internationalism dead? With Trump's election, many observers concluded that the answer was sadly, yes, it was dead. Um, here's the Brookings Institution's Robert Kagan, who's writing here in the New York Times. President Trump may not enjoy majority support these days, but there's good reason to believe his America-first approach to the world does. The old consensus about America's role as upholder of global security has collapsed in both parties. So there's a lot of Sturm and drang with Trump uh, within the foreign policy establishment, the blob, as we might uh, call it. But the truth of things is that now, almost after three years of Trump, we can say very confidently that the public has not embraced uh, Trumpism uh, or America first, uh, nor has it retreated into isolationism. Trump's conduct of foreign policy actually is quite unpopular, both generally speaking. Um, Just last week, the Quinnipiac poll uh, found that 57% of the public disapproves of his conduct of foreign policy, just 37% approve. But it's also unpopular in the particulars. Um, His pet America First projects are some of his least popular policies. Uh, Projects like the border wall, trade policies, and so on, are opposed by clear majorities. Um, And here's here's the... Funny thing, presidents are supposed to have this bully pulpit and be able to do wonderful things with public opinion, but Trump has what you might think of as a toxic touch when it comes to foreign affairs. Things he argues for tend to get less popular. Um, And this is despite the fact that in our currently very polarized age, many Republicans support his policies out of party loyalty, right? So even so, we're seeing a boomerang when Trump tries to push for things. Just to take one uh, recent example, Uh, Trump's very protectionist approach to trade uh, and his rhetoric has has really backfired. The 2019 Chicago Council survey found the highest ever support for free trade among the public. 87% of the public, this is a ridiculous number, 87% of the public, sadly it's ridiculous, they should all agree, uh, 87% (laughs) said that free trade is good uh, for the American economy. This is a jump of 30 percentage points from the year before Trump took office. 30 points, that's just ridiculous. Um, NAFTA, also its highest marks ever. Is over 60% supporting NAFTA. It's never been a very popular uh, policy. And there's even majority support now for the TPP, which Trump sort of pulled out of right when he came into office. So Trump touches it and thinks he's pushing it one way. It goes back the other way, and we could sort of list off several different uh, areas for which this same sort of thing is true. Uh, Syria is an interesting example we can talk about later as well. So you might ask then, well, what is going on then? Because on the one hand, you're telling me before Trump gets into office, it looks like public support for global engagement is shrinking. Um, but on the other hand, you're telling me that people are rejecting America first and apparently Ameri- you know, re- retreat into isolationism and all that sort of stuff. So where is the truth here? And the truth is that the American public is not becoming more isolationist, but it's the flavor of its internationalism is changing. Americans are increasingly tired of the traditional military-centric approach to foreign policy that the, American, the United States has relied on since World War II, but really specifically since the end of the Cold War. Uh, fundamentally, Americans are telling pollsters in survey after survey that they would like to rely much more heavily on diplomacy and cooperation internationally than on the use of military force. Just a few factoids. 78% in a recent Gallup poll say they would like to rely on non-military means to stop Iran from getting nuclear weapons. Um, A majority of people, more people say that that war in Afghanistan, for example, has made us less safe than made us more safe. 68% say we should pursue a policy of friendly cooperation uh, and engagement with China rather than trying to limit the growth of Chinese power. Um, Again, we could keep going, but... uh, issue after issue, Americans say they want to rely much more heavily on cooperation and diplomacy and much less on what has clearly not been going very well, this military heavy approach to foreign policy. Uh, And as we talk about in the book, I think a happy note for America is that these trends are the strongest among the youngest Americans, among millennials and Generation Z. They are the least supportive of America First policies. They are the most at least supportive of military-centric policies, but they remain as or more supportive of international cooperation and and diplomacy as any other generation of Americans. So millennials are not going to kill foreign policy, folks. Uh, I think they're going to save it, all right? So then the road forward, I think, uh, for U.S. foreign policy is actually fairly clear, and happily it already enjoys broad public support. As we outline in our conclusion, uh, U.S. foreign policy really should – move in a restraint direction and embrace three sort of core pillars or principles. Uh, First, the United States should reject the myths of primacy that Chris talked about earlier and the hyperactive foreign policy that it has promoted. Washington should instead pursue a more modest foreign policy agenda that facilitates global trade and uh, focuses on the physical security of the United States rather than on attempts to control the rest of the world. Second, second, Uh, The primary tools of American engagement, as I just said, should be diplomacy, commerce, and cooperation, not military force. The United States is always going to need a strong military for deterrence uh, and self-defense. But the use of force, instead of the first resort, as it's been for the last 20 years, needs to become the last resort. And this doesn't mean that diplomacy is going to get us everything we want. The world doesn't work like that. Diplomacy is slow. It's frustrating. But it's a lot better than starting... uh, To kill people with all the costs and tragedies that that approach entails. And finally, the United States needs to align its foreign policy with the liberal values and norms that the country has espoused ever since its founding and which its political leaders still like to claim we adhere to. But primacy has eroded America's moral uh, authority and undermined the normative, rules-based character of the international order. In our zeal to police the world, America has uh, weakened the most important conventions of the post-World War II system, namely territorial integrity, the principle of non-intervention, and the principle of non-aggression. If the United States wants other countries to play by the rules, it needs to do a better job of observing the rules itself. And I will leave it there and turn it over to Heather.
0: Thank you. Trevor?
3: Thanks. Well, as you can tell, this is an enormously ambitious book with a very wide <laughs> sweep and um, deep and diverse efforts to explain the oddness of the moment we currently find ourselves in. And that's clearly why you decided you needed to have a card-carrying liberal internationalist (laughs) comfortable with broad sweep and, as we've heard, perhaps excessive ambition uh, up here to do the response to it. Um, So having explained the question of what the heck is she doing up there... um, (laughs) This this book really, the, the breadth of things you all address and the various nuggets that you really won't find in any other contemporary commentary is really praiseworthy. And I'm going to pull out a few that I hope you're going to talk about more. And then I'm going to make a few critiques that I hope you're going to respond to as well. And I'll actually start. Um, Trevor, where you left off, because the analysis that you present of the generational aspects of how American foreign policy is changing is really groundbreaking and really challenges a lot of the thinking that we've um, indulged in over the last couple of decades about what is making Americans' attitudes swing on, on foreign policy. And if I can I hope you'll talk about it more, but um, you look all the way back to the beginning of the 20th century, actually, and look at generational cohorts, and you show um, a really interesting, not a steady decline, but a rise and fall and rise and fall of generations' comfort with U.S. engagement in the world, U.S. leadership in the world, the role of the use of force in the world. And you suggest, in a way that I think... um, really um, may suggest that even larger forces are at play than the ones we like to think about, that it's actually all about what we experience as young Americans and how we experience our country in the world as young Americans and that it may be that that's the only thing that makes any difference in generational attitudes. But I'd I'd love to hear you talk more about that. I'd also be really curious if you have, and if you have not, someone who's here or who's watching this really should go out and do this work. How does this compare to generational shifts on other major national issues? Is foreign and security policy following in the trends of how Americans think about government engagement in their lives, for example, which is something that's near and dear to your heart here at Cato, um, about various social issues, about various economic issues? Do do the trends over the last century in national security track that or are they totally different? um, The data is just so interesting. And as you said, anyone who who likes to geek out on that piece um, should really spend some more time in this. But there's another component that I think um, it also runs directly into and that is the increased role in the last um, decade of partisanship in shaping national security, public opinion. And for every issue... Uh, where you've had kind of an amazing swing under Trump, you have another issue where um, views are now completely divided based on partisan allegiance. Tell me what party you vote with, and I'll tell you what you think about Russia, for example. Um, and that that, um, polarize, that issue polarization can now make public opinion flip, as it did on Russia, for example, around um, 2015, 2016. Um, there's similarly a question on trade, whether um, Democrats are pro-trade now because they think Trump is against it, and Trump supporters are pro-trade because they think Trump is doing it. <laughs> so um, we are in this, the, the, the role of polarization in setting public opinion on on international issues is, I think, one that you wrestle with a bit in the book, and I'd I'd like to hear you wrestle with it more here, because I think it brings up a larger question about your ambitions for a restraint-based foreign policy or anyone's ambition for a post-Trump foreign policy, whatever that looks like. Um, We had, as you note, a very strong bipartisan consensus for a long time. And you could build a more left version of that consensus, bringing in and out certain um, factions. You could build a more right version of it. But it's my view that any post-Trump foreign policy is going to have to assemble a rather different coalition. And I don't see, either in your conclusion or throughout the book, much thought about where the, where the, the power for a restraint based foreign policy would come from sort of who are your constituencies um and i'm you could i will say you could ask liberal internationalists the same question you can ask the kind of progressive multilateralists if i call that school that the same question but this this i mean one of the things that i think um, Trump has been really good at, and this starts to move into some of the, the assessment of the record of the last two years, is doing just enough to keep a coalition together. And that some of, and you um, treat this briefly in the section on, on what is, how do we understand Trump, um, that he is untrammeled by conviction enough to be willing to do whatever it takes to keep relevant chunks of the Republican Party on side. And one can certainly explain. Um, current developments in Syria policy, which I can't really explain any other way by that. So that sort of brings me to my, my next line of, of questioning, which is that I, I really appreciate it. I have anyone who follows me in social media knows that every now and then I say that I'm going to retire from the world and write the successor to the Walter Russell Mead book, but instead I show up on panels at lunchtime instead. <laughs> um, but I do think you've done a, a really good first whack at updating Jacksonianism um, or post-Jacksonianism. And one of the things that I think you do that's most valuable is, I, if I remember, Mead doesn't talk a lot about honor culture. But of course, honor that particular Scots-Irish honor culture was enormously important to Jackson and his view of the world. And so there's a funny way that Trump is more Jacksonian than Jackson um, in that regard. And I think that um, in that, he taps into something broader in a segment of the American public that was uncomfortable with the um, more internationalist version of honor, or to use a word that, when it's employed by Trump's allies, has very deliberate anti-Semitic connotations, but a cosmopolitan idea of honor. Um, so that I think is a really important um, insight, and I'd love to hear you talk more about what we've learned from the the six months since. Um since the book went to print.
0: Um,
3: You know, how and how do we understand how do we understand the notion of honor when um, the UN General Assembly laughs at you, Mm. when um the president of Turkey sort of makes sure everyone is aware that he ripped up your letter and threw it in the trash? Um how do we how do we understand what does it mean in such a globalized age that you can have not just a president but somewhere between 20 and 40 percent of the electorate that that sees honor in that? Um, How do do we think about that in in foreign policy constructs? Um, And then the last thing I really want to touch on is um, your assertion uh, that not that much has really changed in American foreign policy over the last two years. Because when I read this part in the book, I thought, oh, well, they're surely going to regret that they had to go to press when they did. And they're surely going to want to change that assessment. But you. don't want to change that assessment. <laughs> and so I reading the book, I thought, well, okay, how can, I, how can I understand how you and I can look at the same facts and see the effects so differently? And this I think brings us to the sort of broader question of what is a doctrine of restraint and what does it cover and does it actually adequately encompass the range of challenges that, that confront any American leader? Because if you, think, if you think that climate policy is a big deal, if you think that climate is, may, is either the number one security threat America faces, or if you just find that a tedious argument but you think it's a major threat we need to be spending a lot of time and effort on, if you think that migration is an enormous problem for security reasons, for economic reasons, for social cohesion reasons, If you think that trade, that I mean, never mind more open trade, just having any kind of stable international economic regime is an enormous issue. Um, Then, oh, and if you think that nuclear proliferation is a fundamental security issue, then I think you think that this president has changed rather a lot in ways that will not easily be changed back. but, I think that I have just t- at least three of the issues I just ticked off are actually not fundamental to the kind of traditional realist restrainer um, thought about the world. And so there i would uh, I would gently push back and say, "Are we sure that we've got the aperture if if the aperture omits those things, mm-hmm. are we sure we've got the aperture quite quite right? Um, so I mean, because all of them are going to profoundly all of them are going to affect the quality of life that, that we and our children have, to your point, much more than um, how many US troops are in Japan. Um, so so there's that I'd, I'd like to, to talk about some more. And then um, I'd like to make one methodological point which is that you, and, and really, you deserve a huge vote of thanks for making this effort because having the gumption to do and around the world of what the president is doing when, as you said, you have to go back and cross out all the titles, I mean, after we come off stage from this panel, um, really took an enormous amount of courage. And, I, got
2: written twice.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and I, I salute you for that. And it's also very important um, because thinking a little bit historically, we're in this period where events move so fast, it's very difficult to keep track of what happened two weeks ago. So all of you who are engaged in writing first drafts of history, it's an enormously important resource, and I thank you for it. At the same time, it was really jarring to go through region after region after region and see no sites or references to um, analysts or leaders from those regions about how their societies were being affected or how their thoughts about alliances were changing or how their plans for their own futures were being affected. And um, I might also note in this context a certain um, tendency of the analysts quoted to favor the white Anglo-American male. And I'm not doing this because I'm the political correctness police. I am doing it because I think there's a risk of missing some of the changes that are taking place. And if we don't see the changes that are taking place, then we won't be well-positioned to respond to them, which is, unfortunately, one of the great historic critiques of American foreign policy across ideology uh, and across party, right, that we tend to get really self referential and not to think very hard about how the effect our policies are having on the people that we are supposedly helping or whatever it is that we're doing. And so, if I may end by being um, more restrainery than the restrainers, um, I do think one of the very best points you make is that it's that we don't think enough about the impact of our policies. And so, I'd like to see your analysis think more about the impact of the policies. And so with that, I've asked a bunch of questions. I hope I've caused some arguments to keep everyone in the audience entertained. And um, thank you very much for, for inviting me to participate.
0: Thank you, Heather. Um, Trevor, why don't we work down in the order she asked the question, because she had a question about polls that, that's clearly about you. Um, I was going to answer the question on uh, on Jacksonianism. I have a thought on that. Uh, and and uh, perhaps also uh, you can handle the, the continuity stuff.
1: Yeah.
2: All right. So. <clears throat> All right, cast my mind. That was, a, that was a tour de force. Thank you. That, that was fantastic. Um, I had to keep up with three of you. is <laughs> <laughs> so not your usual
3: comment on the author gig.
2: So, the, uh, you know, the um, the, the analysis of, of intergenerational foreign policy attitudes shift is a hobby horse of mine. I've been working on it for a few years, and, and, you know, shout out to the, a future book forum. That That's a book in progress. But, um, yeah, the short, the short story is that there are bigger forces at work other than just polarization, other than the president or the events of the day. And working with a, a co-author, Eric Goepner, um, you know, we've sort of I think discovered that what one really important thing that's driving uh, these generation gaps, if you will, is is simply you know it's not really a huge surprise if you think about it. But but how you think about things as an adult is affected by how the world was when you were a young impressionable person. Uh, first kind of awakening to what the world is like and what the important things in the world are. And so sociologists call this your critical period, you know, when you're roughly 14 to 24 years old. And, and, you know, did you grow up during the Depression? Did you grow up during World War II? Did you enlist when you were 18? I mean, these things make permanent and very large impacts on your brain. And when you think about the broad sweep of American generations, you have uh, the, the, the oldest generations in the polls are the lost generation and the silent generation. And, and these are folks who grew up before the United States was number one, sort of economically and militarily in the world. And they were fairly, um, they were not nearly as internationalist uh, as later generations. And so, um, or sorry, the lost and the greatest are the older. And then you get to the silent generation who, who comes of age before World War II. And these people are people who come of age when the United States is hitting its stride, winning World War II beating up the Nazis. Um, How do you not feel great about America and engaging the world when you have 50% of the global GDP in 1950? You can do whatever you want. No problem. But what happens after 1950? U.S. GDP as a share of the world starts to slide. We're down around 15% today or so. It bounces up and down. Um, And what we found in our research is that this single number, along with a couple other things, really helps you track generation by generation sort of what people's anchor is. So there are other things that make you more or less likely to want to engage the world on a day-to-day basis, a threat from ISIS or someone, you know, uh, drives airplanes into the World Trade Center, that kind of thing. Um, But in general, the conditions that sort of held when you were a young adult uh, stick with you for the rest of your life. And so we had a couple generations of increasingly internationalist Americans, but since World War II, we've had decreasingly internationalist Americans. And nothing the president says or does is going to change that. Uh, these are really big tectonic forces at work that probably aren't changing anytime soon. Uh, these anchoring effects affect both Democrats and Republicans. Uh, obviously, there are still differences, very important ones, between the two groups, uh, between liberals and conservatives and other groups. But these are broad changes that are affecting the United States, I think, and I think they're permanent. And, and to answer the other question, yes, you can see intergenerational uh, change across all sorts of issues, Um, but they're not in sync. They're not all tied to sort of the same thing. They're tied to lots of other interesting things. Um, And so, you know, one of the bigger trends that we could talk about that Gallup, you know, tracks is um, sort of the ideology uh, composition of the public, and it's getting increasingly more liberal since World War II. And that has a host of ramifications for what people think about same-sex marriage, what do they think about the role of the government, what do they think about... Uh, trade? What do they think about you know, protecting American jobs? What do they think about the climate? And so on. So you look at young American opinions, and a chunk of it is due to the fact that the youngest Americans are the first generation to grow up after the Cold War ended. But another chunk of it is due to the fact that they're also the most liberal generation of Americans. They're also the least uh, white Americans, the most likely to be born to immigrant parents or to come from somewhere else. And so these sort of twin sort of factors are really driving massive amounts of change on all sorts of issues.
1: So on this uh, continuity versus change issue uh, in U.S. foreign policy, uh, Heather quite uh, rightly points out that uh, the aperture that we use to evaluate this is limited in some important ways. and I take the compliment that this is an ambitious book in many ways, but we needed, I think, to be somewhat narrow and specific when we we're talking about what we're looking at in terms of change. So I would never want to suggest that Donald Trump has, you know, is basically like his predecessors in every way. Um, and a lot about the conduct and operation and implementation about US, of U.S. foreign policy has radically changed. Uh, I mean, the way the president engages with foreign leaders on, on phone calls, for example, is is uh, and, and and is but is also not uh, terribly trivial, even though sometimes it seems so. It it uh, it has real implications um, and, uh, and and things like that. But we are three guys that view U.S. foreign policy debates through the prism of grand strategy. So primacy is the grand strategy that we've had for a very long time. It involves uh, an insistence that the United States possess uh, preponderance of military power, uh, that we have far-flung alliances all around the world, so that we're treaty-bound to protect 60 or 70 nations, Uh, military assets all over the world. We have about 800 military bases in 70 or 80 countries. We have some form of U.S. military deployed to more than 150 countries, virtually the entire world. Um, We make everybody's business our own, and we interpret peripheral interests as if they're vital ones. That's essentially my description of primacy. In the implementation and the actual, how the policies still exist today, that's still our grand strategy. You know, people like to say uh, Trump is restrained, and they point to examples. For example, when he, decided not to attack Iran after the downing of a U.S. drone in or near Iranian airspace. And they said, well, this is an example of great restraint in foreign policy by a president. And first of all, I don't think it is. Trump brought us up to that brink through his very unrestrained foreign policies of abandoning the JCPOA, imposing harsh sanctions, uh, abandoning our... European allies and Russia and China on that deal, which was, you know, uh, voted on by the UN Security Council uh, and hiring a lot of people who have a history of uh, calling for regime change in Iran and so on. So restraint describes not one case's unwillingness to use force, right, In, in that specific instance. It describes a role for the U.S. in the world, What kind of things should we deem as important enough to risk American blood and treasure? Uh, We see it as, you know, restraint prescribes a pretty narrow conception of the U.S. role in the world. Uh, Our interests should be defended with the military only when U.S. security is at risk, uh, direct security against this territory and its people. Uh, And the prescription for primacy is, there's a lot of reasons we should use the military. Uh, We also have a preference for the Constitution. You know, the rule of law is important, and uh, Trump has done a lot to disintegrate it, but we shouldn't forget that his predecessors did a lot to uh, basically destroy the constitutional right and authority of Congress to determine the United States' involvement in hostilities abroad. Uh, That part of the Constitution has just withered away, Congress is uh, incentivized not to exercise it and, and the president, whoever it is, tends not to want that kind of uh, restriction. And so we did focus pretty narrowly. And,
2: yeah. and I'm, let me just draw your attention to the, to the subtitle of the book because, because it's, it's how Trump made America's broken foreign policy even worse. Right. And what you described, I, I think, is that there's such a thing as primacy and then there's a worse version of primacy. And that's, I think, what we're suggesting is that the broad strokes, as John said, I I think remain unchanged, and yet he's managed to do even more bad things when he's gotten his way which he hasn't always, but where he's gotten his way, he's tended to make things worse. Yeah, I guess
3: if I were trying to make your argument, I would make the point that what he's doing actually makes primacy even less tenable. Right. I mean, as a liberal internationalist who thought we were at the end of primacy before Trump was elected, um, I look at this and I say, well, if you had the idea we could keep this going before, there's no way we can keep it going after this. I do think if you make that argument, you then have to acknowledge that there are a lot of us in the, the... establishment who make that argument, which kind of undercuts the, oh, the blob, they're all alike, they all are automatons who think the same thing. But. Yeah,
1: no, well, there's definitely change going on in the establishment. And unfortunately, Another conference. I, I'm reluctant to do it, but I do have to give Trump credit for that, even though it wasn't his intention. He's been such a disruption to things that it's kind of shaken loose the bipartisan consensus. One final point on this, uh, we, you mentioned climate, migration, and trade. We do a lot on migration, or a sufficient, I think, on migration and trade, uh, but we do skip out on climate. Uh, and that's not because we don't think it's important, but it's just because security policy, bombs and bullets, the thing that we focus on here, uh, doesn't have much to do with uh, what we ought to do on climate change.
0: Let me, and, and so you guys both did a great job answering uh, Heather's questions, and I was going to come back to something that has since come up, and I just want to sort of amplify that. This is the danger of. Being the tail end of the of the panel, as opposed to being you know, once I started and whatever, um, and that is the Heather. You asked the question about sort of Jacksonianism and honor culture, and what does this mean? And the uh, the steady erosion of congressional power, especially over foreign policy, but more generally in terms of the separation of powers, should make us particularly concerned yes. about. Uh, a a single person uh, having so much power and being driven, as, as John in particular sort of documents in great detail, this sort of notion of prestige and honor and status. So that should concern us. And I also scribbled a note to myself, as you alluded, Heather, this is also a major problem for global leadership, for American global leadership, because if primacy hinges, as I think it mostly does, on the wisdom of American leaders and the commitment of American leaders to this vision of a liberal world order. If that is the read upon which this is, this is based, you have a problem when the person who has all this power isn't bought into liberalism and American leadership as, as it is in practice. Now, I we have all documented that at various stages, and in this book, my argument is then that should mean we should be driving towards a more resilient order that is less dependent upon the power of a single state and more, more specifically the power and, and sort of whims of a single person. Okay? And so that is a problem for primacy. Um, the second point is, is on the partisanship and how do we assemble a coalition that is committed to restraint. We we've thought about this a lot. Okay, and we close the book with a, I think, a, a fairly agnostic open invitation to anyone, independent of, of, of either or any party, to come forward with a practical foreign policy that speaks to the the shift in public sentiment that we are seeing, and that is also mindful of one thing we haven't talked about much, mindful of The very real constraints that we are operating under. Even if Donald Trump leaves office next month or in January of 2021, the we are still basically uh, at you know um, 20 trillion dollars in debt and a 20 trillion dollar economy. That's not great. Uh, In terms of long-term projections, you're talking five or six times that. In terms of sort of promises made to future generations, we have a a massive fiscal imbalance. That is a real constraint uh, that that the next president is not just going to be able to wave away uh, uh, he or she. Uh, And so I think we need to be mindful as a practical matter uh, that we need to have more humility. This is the note that I wrote and scribbled in the margins. Humility, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, should be – celebrated a willingness to admit that there are certain things that we can do and we should do them well, but we cannot do everything and we cannot go everywhere. I, I, I still have enough faith in the American people that they would respect someone sort of speaking honestly about the limits of American power. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And just to pick up on that, I mean, I, I, I've, ha- I've actually done the analysis to figure out where the restraint constituency would be. And and it's, it is a moving target, as, as everyone in politics knows, as coalitions are ephemeral. But I think there is, mean, you could call it millennial liberal internationalism. It, it it would be a, you know, it wouldn't have to look radically different from a lot of what the United States has done in terms of international cooperation, trade, and so on and so forth. It would, in fact, I think, lean into that while, you know, acknowledging that we are secure and don't need to go romper stomping around the world with our military uh, as much as we used to. And then I think, you know, Chris does touch on another key part of that. Part of, of, of the new millennial liberal internationalism that I think most Americans have been signaling for is that they want uh, to do less of the heavy lifting and would like a shared leadership role, not a unilateral United States runs the world, global cop kind of a role. And I think there is a majority of Americans who, if there was bipartisan consensus in D.C. on this question, would be able to stand up behind that perfectly comfortably. I think that's where the rub is is I don't see the Republican Party being interested in that right now, and I don't see the progressive winning of the Democratic Party being able to give up the military toys um, to go, you know, sort of put bad countries to the right.
3: Well, I'll say the way I think about that um, is that we have, you know, Chris, when you talked about the, the fiscal constraint that we face, I think the political constraint that we face is that both parties have in the post 9-11 period, gotten quite addicted to military spending and holding up of military first policies as a shorthand to talk to the American people about strength and patriotism. Mm -hmm. And we don't have in either party other language for that or other metaphors for that. And with the increased collapse and dwindling of our news gathering apparatus, we don't anymore have the ability to tell the American people stories about what leadership that doesn't involve moving special forces or dropping bombs right. looks like. Absolutely. So that is, I mean, if I, um, if you come to me and say, so here's my coalition for restraint, I look at you and I say that looks great on paper, but then all of my members get challengers, um, who are, you know, there's there's a hundred Tulsi Gabbard's and Seth Moultons and um, oh dear, uh, Kinsingers and. Um, Florida New Republican, I'm trying to be bipartisan.
2: Um,
3: but there's so there's a million of those folks to come along and say, you are undercutting the thing that makes America great. And so to me, that is that is the fundamental challenge that liberal international renovated liberal internationalists, progressives, and restrainers all share. And whoever figures out how to surmount it, that'll be, that'll be the ideology that wins, right?
0: right? Yeah. right. So. That's great. All right, so we have about 30 minutes uh, for, not quite, just about 30 minutes for questions. Um, I will uh, sort of remind you uh, of the ground rules. Um, they should be fairly familiar to you. Uh, please wait for the microphone. That's for the benefit, not merely of those here in the audience, but also for those watching online or on television. Um, please identify yourself and your affiliation if you have one. Uh, and uh, I'll also remind you that here at the Cato Institute, the Jeopardy rule applies. That's that. Uh, uh, ask your question in the form of a question, so no speeches, please. Uh, and with that, I will, uh, we have uh, two folks with microphones roaming the, uh, the audience. So, uh, what right over there, that's great. And then there's a gentleman over here, sir. Um, my name is Amy McEwen, and I'm a financial analyst. So I'm a contractor. I hear a lot of people speaking about China and trade. We've been trading with China for a while now. There are parts of China that are expensive, I never hear anyone talk about where we go after China gets too expensive to really work with them. I never <laughs> yeah, hear that. That's right. That's a great question. Uh, the answer is um, uh, it appear, it's already happening elsewhere in, in Asia, Southeast Asia in particular. Uh, in fact, you... You do occasionally hear uh, a certain amount of Chinese angst that they have now become the not the low the low wage uh, uh, market, but the the sort of middle tier market, and so there's a little bit of anxiety about that. So I, I, there is some discussion of it, but you're right, it's not it's not thoroughly penetrated. I think.
3: Yeah. So to me, I mean, this your question opens up another kind of area that I think it's worth really digging down and unpacking some of your assumptions because one of the things that we've seen as a result of the uh, incoherent belligerence of the last two years is that you have some producers moving out of China to Vietnam, Malaysia, and then some producers moving back to higher-end markets. So you see things like bicycles going back to Taiwan, mm-hmm. uh, Volvos going back to Europe um, kind of thing, some producers moving back to the U.S., although not much on net. So we're at this moment where, and, and in general, we think we see supply chains shortening up both because of that and because as China and some other Asian countries have developed their internal markets more, they can they can do more locally and they don't need to be part of a far-flung supply chain where people are always trying to impose either lower prices or better working conditions or some tariffy thing on them. So we are in fact at this moment where for a variety of exogenous and endogenous reasons, it's very unclear that the trading system in five or ten years looks like a straight line continuation of what it was, which I think has really profound implications for how we think about what kind of political and security system best conditions the shocks of that.
0: Well said, well said. Uh, Sir, you had your hand up right there on the uh, aisle.
4: Whereas since World War II uh, and 1967 and 1991 uh, uh, fall of Soviet Union, uh, practically, uh, the whole United States foreign policy has been under control or subservient with interest of the Israel and Israeli lobby in this country. Uh, have you had any discussion or uh, matter in the book uh, what you have r- written that uh, uh, regarding the effect of this in the? operation of U.S. in other countries, including the Middle East, including all the wars,
1: everywhere you go that you will that hand. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think that overstates the case. I think the uh, relationship between the United States and Israel is unique in a lot of ways, but in, in the important ways that we anal- analyze it, it's a lot like all, all of our other alliances, which is that in order to maintain them, as the superior partner, we end up having to adopt their uh, regional preferences, their sets of interests, uh, and we don't pay close enough attention to the extent to which that undermines our own. So uh, our relationships with states in the Middle East are one reason among many that we've become entangled militarily there. Um, and I think we should look at each of those and scrutinize them.
0: Yeah, yeah. Let, me, let me add to that. I mean. We are, as we speak, uh, engaged in a, in a very awkward uh, um, sort of discussion over U.S. support for um, a particular faction within Syria uh, that is directly a threat to our NATO treaty ally, Turkey. Um, and that really does not, that is, that is even in the Middle East, but not primarily an Israeli question, right? This is a question about the Turks and the And the PKK, as far as they uh, portray it, and so it's. I want to just second what John said: is we have security alliances or commitment in some fashion to sixty some odd countries around the world in terms of a sort of something that would be portrayed as a formal commitment and a sort of de facto commitment to at least some additional number where there are U.S. forces deployed, Uh, and so. So this, to me, is, a, is, a, is a much, it's much more uh, than just uh, focusing on a single ally, uh, even in a single region.
3: Yeah, I think just the one other thing that I would say is that U.S. democracy is set up so that groups of citizens yes, right. can get together yeah. and lobby on behalf of their interests. Right. And since the uh, Supreme Court decided that money is speech... Groups of corporations can also get together and lobby about their interests, and lots of them do. And when one of them gets singled out more than others, which is not necessarily any more influential than others, that's really problematic, and it's about something other than American foreign
0: policy. Well said. Uh, other questions? Right here in the front. Yes, sir?
4: Uh, Gene Dorosh, citizen. Uh, how influential do you think uh, citizens' beliefs in uh, international affairs, affects their voting in, say, the
1: presidential election.
2: <laughs> <laughs> also. It's very well, good
1: question. It almost seems like you know the answer. Yeah, you
2: might be guessing. <laughs> your, your grin suggests you know the answer is usually not very much. Uh, there are a few watershed, you know, elections like in 1968 where unhappiness with a war really sort of changes the the battlefield entirely. But for the most part, right? It's the economy, stupid. And but having said that when you decompose presidential popularity figures, when you say, why does only 41.1% today, according to the 538 moving average, uh, approve of the job Trump is doing as president, um, you can actually do some fancy math to figure out that that people's beliefs about his handling of foreign policy play an important role in making that number happen. And that number then is important for what people vote. So it's not like it doesn't matter, but it doesn't matter specifically what he says today about Syria or what he does about Ukraine. I mean, well, Ukraine might be an exception here, but, you know, in general, yeah. in general, it doesn't matter as much as the people on the stage would like it to. Right. I guess that's probably the yeah, point. Yeah, and I think
0: that's absolutely true. Um, while technically speaking, the election of 1968 was in my lifetime, you can guess how old I am, therefore. Um, in my memory, and even since I've been here at Cato, I do think there were two other elections Uh, not presidential elections, but but elections where foreign policy played a a larger than normal role, the normal role being virtually not at all because it's the economy stupid. The 2006 election that resulted in a wave of uh, of Democrats uh, winning both in the House and the Senate was clearly a reaction to President Trump's, uh, excuse me, President Bush's war in Iraq. There's there's no question about that. Um, I also believe There has been some some good and credible research into voting patterns in three critical states in the 2016 election, in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and and Wisconsin. In Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, uh, in the counties in which there was a disproportionate uh, number of people who were killed or injured in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, uh, President uh, candidate Trump appeared to do better than would have been otherwise expected against uh, Hillary Clinton. So, so again, it, you have to parse this stuff fairly carefully because Trevor is absolutely correct. Most of the time, it's the economy stupid. The One last thing I'll say quickly, though, is that we were we were told, or it was said, and I'm using the the passive voice uh, deliberately there. Um, that no one like Donald Trump could ever come close to the presidency because no one could actually make a case explicitly for America for first, a phrase that he actually used, not realizing when it had been used previously, um, or even more recently, come home America, you know, George McGovern lo- losing 49 states. So we were told that no one could even come close to the White House espousing those views, and clearly those views did not prevent Donald Trump from being elected president. I'm not going to say that's the reason why he was elected, but it didn't prove disqualifying relative to the other positions that he was taking.
3: I want to jump in on that because I think we sometimes, um, foreign policy the way we pointy-headedly would like to define it and talk about it, I completely agree with everything that Trevor, you said. But I think, and the 2016 election is a really good example of this, we have to ask ourselves whether the voting public or significant swaths of the voting public are now defining it in a different way. Mm -hmm. And where there is this cocktail of security voting that has um, immigration, cultural anxiety, economic anxiety, all sort of wrapped up together yeah. and that their national security issues are able to be used to drive Absolutely. voting patterns. And actually, I think we started to see this as far back as the uh, the 2012 midterms yeah. where... Wait, you know, no, 2014.
0: 2014, 2014 midterms,
3: yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. sorry, where you had these ridiculous campaign ads about how... Um, Hezbollah was, eject, was, was infecting ISIS fighters with Ebola and sending them to the mall to kill your kids.
2: Right. That's a very and convoluted plot.
0: This, group, this, this audience just laughed. Appropriately you're all, you know, you're smarter than the average sort of, you know, TV viewer. Thank yes, you for that. But
3: I will also say Selection bias. I will uh, also we call say, it. as the as the the token liberal on the stage, that many of the candidates against whom these ads were run also laughed and said, well, I'm not going to go out and push back against that because it's so patently ridiculous. Right. Many of them lost. So I do think when we say people don't vote on national security, they don't vote on it the way we think about it.
2: Let me just piggyback on that because that is an excellent point. And I think one that actually um, really is a huge challenge for the Republican Party moving forward is what does it mean to be a Republican post or during the Trump era? Because Trump has utterly changed. When he stood up on a stage with 16 other Republicans and called the Iraq War a horrible mistake, and got away with it. Yeah. Right. Well, it doesn't mean what you thought it means to be a Republican anymore. Yeah. And so, and I think Trump's evil genius was indeed to marry with a single <laughs> thread or connect with a single thread the domestic and foreign policy sort of actions. So, you know, I'm going to go over there to protect American jobs, which is really an economy yeah. stupid issue. But if I... If I'm doing it overseas, it's also a foreign policy issue. Immigration has kind of become a, sort of a more of a blended issue now. So I think, I think that's a challenge for traditional Republicans who might yeah. pre- prefer a more standard yeah. liberal internationalism um, but because they're having to fight off Trump. Let me give you an interesting example from the Syria thing here. In April of 2018, polls showed that uh, asking about whether Americans support withdrawing the troops, troops from Syria uh, among Democrats, the, it, there was a net 3% support. So 3% more Democrats wanted to pull the troops out than leave them there. Among Republicans, it was minus 4 points. So 4 percentage points, more Republicans wanted to keep them there than to bring them home. A year later, this year, well, a year and a bit later, just last week, uh, Democrats were at a minus 66%. So minus 66% percentage points more democrats want us to keep the troops there because trump said pull them out and now republicans are at plus 34%, right? So in just a year trump has utterly changed what it means to be a republican in a, in a certain sense. And so this is a real challenge for republicans.
0: Yeah. All right, other questions. Uh, yes sir right there in the middle and then uh, yeah, go ahead. And then I see you sir. So we got three questions there.
2: Yeah, Bill Klein, a retired military physician. Uh, you mentioned the economy and the debt in passing. I'm of an older generation where, to me, when I grew up, debt was anathema. Now it seems to be common with everybody from students to the world. Right. But I'm just wondering how these enormous debts, and I don't know who the creditors are because even China has debt apparently, <laughs> uh, are, are, what all that impacts on people and how that may relate to some of your generational changes you've been talking about.
0: Have you have you looked at polling on the? Is there are, are there big differences generationally on the question of debt? I mean, I've got my own views, but I'm curious if there is a generational
2: divide. You know, I, divide. I, I I'm now that you're I don't remember looking at specifically what people's opinions about the level of government <coughs> debt are by generations. All
0: right. Well, let me year. answer the question in a slightly different way. The one thing I do know is which speaks to something that Trevor just alluded to in a different context, which is that because Donald Trump has demonstrated his disinterest in the debt, um, again, we're, we're talking, you know, he's presiding over you know, a, a rising national debt, then Republicans have stopped uh, worrying about it, even to the point that his acting chief of staff and still uh, you know, OMB director, uh, who once cared deeply about the debt, says publicly, no one cares about the debt. That's what Mick Mulvaney says, no one cares about the debt. So that answers your question. No one is caring because there's a bipartisan disinterest, which doesn't exactly answer the question, well, where does the money come from after all? The answer is, well, if, if, our, fiscal, right, if our fiscal situation appears on the surface to be bleak, the one thing we appear to have going for us is that everyone else's is worse. Uh, that's not a very strong uh, foundation upon which to build sort of long-term economic uh, growth. It so. does
3: mean you really cannot afford not to be the reserve currency anymore, right. which makes some of the questions of restraint potentially more challenging. Fair enough.
1: Your memory might be longer than mine, but I don't remember when either party was super concerned about uh, a lot of debt. quite uh, Eisenhower. With regard to, well, even him. <laughs> <laughs> with regard to foreign policy, uh, one of the troubling things is that the ability for the United States, ability and willingness, to go into such deep debt does act as a kind of fuel for military activism. I mean, uh, the, if, if we had the constraint of fiscal conservatism, if we understood that this nation could go abroad only to the extent that Congress can appropriate funds and we shouldn't go deeply into debt in order to pay for that, that would be a huge constraint on U.S. activism. But we can spend six trillion or so dollars on a stupidity like the Iraq War, uh, partly at least, because we have the means to.
2: We paid for it on credit card.
0: Uh, I saw a hand here, uh, right there, jo- Jonathan, uh, the gentleman with the glasses. And then, go ahead, sir.
1: Hi, Jonathan Mann. Um, I, one of you had said that Trump had said that I'm going to get rid of these crazy people who keep saying that primacy is the way to go and foreign policy. But you look at all his uh, selections for his advisors and obviously he has not selected anyone who isn't really big in the primacy camp. Uh, Why might that be? And is there even a um, field of depth for him to select uh, from a non promising camp? Very good question. So first of all, uh, because of the reigning bipartisan consensus, which, yes, has some holes and some diversity, as Heather points out, but it is a pretty firm and has been a pretty firm consensus, uh, the, the bench from which to draw in order to select cabinet officials and all, all the lower-level officials to carry out a foreign policy of restraint is pretty thin. Um, Uh, and uh, on the one hand, that shouldn't matter because the people that the president selects should carry out his foreign policy. That's why I said it was both Trump's fault and the executive branch for failing to provide the presidents with with responsible options to withdraw from Syria or Afghanistan, for example, and left him to sort of just do it uh, by by tweet. Um, But also, yes, Trump has chosen particularly bad uh, officials to represent a foreign policy that doesn 't resemble neocon hawkishness, um, and uh, I think a, a, several reasons for that uh, first of all trump doesn 't read he relies very much on cable news he watches hours and hours of it a day i can 't imma- i mean the list of things i 'd rather do uh, but uh, and so he he if you look good on television and can deliver well on television which is a particular skill not necessarily representative of your skills in other areas um, then he seems to want to to have you with him because he knows a lot of this is projected to the public uh, 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 via television Uh, he also just hasn't thought super deeply about these questions. That, that was one of the things in trying to devise, you know, the, trying to figure out what Trump's worldview was. It was very difficult because he hasn't thought much about it. So it's hard to make concrete, you know, something that is closer to a vacuum. Uh, so if you haven't done much work on this, you haven't thought a lot about it, then you, know, you, you pick very thinly. You know He's a hawk, he's more of a dove. Uh, I'll let them battle it out in my administration and, and we'll see where it goes. Uh, he also knows that he said some dovish things on say for example, North Korea or Russia. And so to his mind, I think it's an advantage to have a hawk that is kind of play a good cop, bad cop type, type of thing.
3: Or you're picking to keep your Republican coalition on side with you and it turns out that he cares much more about power. Yeah. than anything else, which goes back to your authoritarian personality point.
0: But a lot of the traditional Republican foreign policy hands sort of rendered themselves uh, ineligible for service in the Trump administration by signing yeah. one or more of the Never Trump letters, which it seems quite clear, uh, if not he personally has sort of you know checked against He's uh, issued directives to those who are responsible for vetting candidates, with the exception that, you know, of Elliot Abrams. Right, Elliot Some Abrams, was, which reason. also speaks to your point. You know, of all the people that sort of slipped through the through the sieve, uh, how about that one, uh, sir? You had your hand up over there, yes, sir. And then on the aisle there,
4: sir. Uh, Robert Sharin, no current affiliation. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, two recent books by Mr. Frankopan, who's British, uh, the Silk Roads and the New Silk Roads in which he argues very, very convincingly that we're in the midst of a major shift in the world axis of power, uh, and that with 25 to 35 years from now, China will certainly be the dominant uh, world power, not just because their economy is growing very rapidly. I mean, this year, it's, uh, they say the growth rate is going to be 6%, which is the lowest growth rate in 20 years over there, whereas here 2% is a would be a very good uh, yes. growth rate. They, Heroic have this, achievement. Uh, they have this uh, belts and roads strategy, which, is, which for some years now has been investing vast sums of money in building trade networks throughout the world, which favor their access to raw materials and their exports. Uh, they have a long-running uh, military strategy, which is to cement their power over the whole of Asia and prevent any anybody challenging that, while in this country, apart from the numerous uh, political things that everybody's discussed, we have a massive fiscal policy both internationally with these huge debts, which are owed to uh, mainly to China and Asian countries and the Middle Eastern countries, right. and are not, by the way, based, as you said, because everybody else's fiscal situation is worse. It's because this country still has the only sort of safe haven for money, still has a vibrant private sector with an ability to invest and be protected from government confiscation.
0: Got it. So, so the question's about China, it's sort of the, the, the long-term yeah. challenge from China. Yes.
4: I was so, only going to finish by saying we also have the massive domestic debt problem. What is your response yeah. to, in terms of
1: how the- One way to think about the changing balance of power is uh, to look at what a lot of- uh, uh, international relations type people look at what's called latent power, which is just basically economic power and how that can be translated to uh, military power. Now, if you look at, there's no doubt there's been decline or a, a rebalance, relative, 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 relative decline. Relative. So in, in 1945, after you know, the great powers in Europe and Asia had just about destroyed themselves, um, the United States had 5% of the world's population and about 50% of its wealth. Uh, these days that has we still have about four and a half percent of the world 's population, but we have somewhere in the realm of thirteen to fifteen percent of the world 's wealth and in two thousand and twenty three it 'll be a little less right um, and and so that that is one measure, and it does say certain things, but it doesn 't say everything uh, and the the tone of decline, this fear of, okay, we're, we're declining power now, and that has certain characteristics, I think is, is, uh, we should be careful about that. A lot of those numbers changes are just a story about uh, millions and millions of people lifting themselves out of poverty, and we should be happy about that. Um, uh, with regard to China's policies, you know, I, I don't see the, the reason for fear and consternation that, that other people do. There are certainly problems. Um, The Belt and Road Initiative, sort of like the uh, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, when the Obama administration decided that that was now representative of some kind of turn from the United States being the leader to China, and it kind of petulantly opposed it. Meanwhile, most of the world, most of the invites, and most of our allies uh, embraced it. I think we should probably not go the route of just trying to be uh, the China stinker and stay out of stuff like this, and, and in order to in it, a kind of futile attempt to contain them, we should embrace uh, working with China, and we shouldn't fear the Belt and Road to the extent that it. We can build on it if China is willing, and, and this kind of thing. So, cooperation, I think, is is better. And third and final point: decline. I don't think it's valuable to think of America as number one. I don't think that that has tangible utility for what the military and uh, the government should be about, which is protecting this country and not uh, waving its flag uh, with valor and gallantry all around the world, you know. I don't care that we're uh, less powerful than some other countries in some respects. I think we should just uh, take care of our own security.
2: Absolutely, And, and on top of that, I'll just point out, you know, uh, if you worry so much about another country sort of being the, the leader of, in, in international trade, um, you have to do a little, you know, history recall and say, under whose system did China just get fat, rich, and happy? Someone else's. They didn't run the world while they were getting fabulously rich and, and having 15% growth year year after year. That We ran the world while they were doing that. Oh, I mean, trade is a win-win. As, as long as we're all trading, we're all winning. It's not a problem if China grows.
0: All right, last question. Yes, uh, yes ma'am, right there.
3: Hi, Alex Stark, New America. Hi. Um, on this question of public opinion and grand strategy and that connection, I'm wondering how you think about uh, the strain we've seen over the past uh, couple of decades of um, kind of reverence for the military or the idea of supporting our troops. Um, and I think, so in the Trump administration, you see this kind of divergent rhetoric on the one hand, quote-unquote, let's bring our boys home from Syria. On the other hand, we need to boost military spending and right. you know, have the, the best military ever. From a grand strategy perspective, you know, primacy versus um, restraint, that seems really divergent and kind of weird, but for at least a segment of, of the U.S. population, it seems like it has some kind of um, coherent logic to it.
0: Yeah, let, let, me, let me take that one, because I do think it, it's a nice way to sort of end this discussion, which is, you know, restrainers like us are, are sort of often you know, accused, well, that's all well and good. What are you for, right? What, what are you in favor of? And I think that one of the contributions that we really hope to make in this book is to talk about what we're for, not merely what we're against. And what the United States did for most of its history was engage with the rest of the world peacefully through diplomacy, through trade, through cu- our, our cultural influence, which is, a, which is a good thing, okay? It is peaceful, but it's also effective. There are reasonable questions about the effectiveness of U.S. military power, and many Americans feel that at the same time that they hold the military as an institution in higher regard than any other institution in the country by a large margin. Okay, And so the fact that Americans can feel this way towards the military as an institution and, and towards those who serve and still have reasonable doubts about what we are asking these men and women to do on our behalf and willing, therefore, to consider the other instruments of American power, I take that as a good sign. Okay. I share the concern that by overinvesting attention and time and, yes, money in the military instrument at the expense of these other things, uh, that we don't have good stories to tell. Heather talked about this, but that does not mean there are not still good stories to tell. And we should seek them out. And we should tell them. We did um, humbly, uh, and so uh, again, I, I appreciate the question. And I think we can we can respect um, uh, the the institution of the military. We can respect the people who serve in it, and not presume that that is the only instrument of American power that we can use or will ever be. In fact,
1: able to. one might suggest that overusing the military and putting. Uh, U.S. soldiers in harm's way for reasons that, are, that don't rise to the level of something crucially important for U.S. security and safety is the opposite of respecting them. Right, exactly.
0: All right, well, that's an excellent place to end. Thank
1: you
2: all very much. Um, uh,